Hello and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast all about the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I have a fantastic interview for you in this session, so stick around and we'll jump right on in. Before we get started this week, I'm proud to announce that Permaculture Magazine of North America has become the first sponsor of this podcast. Incidentally, they've also just celebrated their one-year anniversary this summer. And as the offshoot of the beloved Permaculture Magazine International out of the UK, there is now a regional edition to help strengthen permaculture knowledge throughout North America. This is one of my favorite go-to resources for the latest information on innovation and news in the permaculture world. If you visit permaculturemag.org to sign up for your hard copy subscription today, you'll get the 25-year digital archive of Permaculture Magazine International as a free bonus. And just for listeners of The Abundant Edge, you can now receive 50% off your digital copy subscription right now by finding the discount code in the show notes for this episode. So go now to permaculturemag.org and dive deep into the local and global solutions that go beyond sustainability. All right, I have an extra special interview for all of you today. In this episode, I've got not one, but two visionary changemakers from the community restoration nonprofit City Repair, which is based in Portland, Oregon. I've got Riddy DeCruz, the Village Coalition organizer, and the founder of City Repair, Mark Lakeman. They each come from very different backgrounds, but have united to foster thriving, inclusive, and sustainable communities through the creative reclamation of public space. City Repair also facilitates artistic and ecologically oriented placemaking through projects that honor the interconnection of human communities and the natural world. Now, I know that all sounds a bit complicated, but what's really worth knowing is that a large part of their projects involve permaculture garden installations and community spaces built with natural materials all in urban environments where those types of projects have traditionally been hard to get approved. In this interview, Mark and Riddy go in-depth about the concept of placemaking and why it's so essential in our modern communities. Mark gives incredible insights on the history of colonial advancement through the Americas and how it shaped the landscape and our environment into one that isolates us from one another. Riddy goes on to explain their annual event called the Village Building Convergence and how their work has already had an amazing impact on the interconnectedness of people that they've worked with in unexpected ways. At the end, both of them give invaluable advice on how you can take up the mantle and effectively create and facilitate connections in your own community. The answers may surprise you. But before I give anything away, I'll turn things over to Riddy DeCruz and Mark Lakeman. All right, I'm joined here today by Mark Lakeman and Riddy DeCruz. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for You're welcome, Oliver. Before we jump into all the questions, uh, how about starting with Riddy? Could you both mm-hmm. introduce yourselves just a little and tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and how you came to work with City Repair? Okay. Um, I first heard about City Repair in India from <clears throat> a uh, co-participant in a natural building workshop. Um, and he, I told him that I had been considering grad school in Portland. There were just various things that were drawing me towards Oregon. Um, mostly awesome people who had the spirit of the forest in their step in India. And um, 
so yeah, he he said, oh, wow, you're going to Portland. Have you heard of City Repair? And I was like, uh, no. And then he said, oh my gosh, it's right up your alley. And sure enough, I looked looked it up and, you know, I was painting walls with friends in India to kind of as a response to rapid urbanization in my city and the and what I thought was the commoditization of relationships, like everything was transactional and money oriented and disorienting for me growing up um, in a more place-based culture. So, um, so I feel like that um, and a series of other deci- decisions and choices led to me ending up in Portland and, um, and yeah, and then it was inevitable that I would get involved with repair. And um, I did grad school in anthropology. Um, and I cho- part of also what, part of why I chose Portland was to understand how urban planning and sustainability um, can work in ways to ensure that we we have a life that's um, that's both justice oriented, um, but also that's um, and for to people and to the planet as well. You know, so kind of well rounded and. I'm finding um, my exploration and that continues outside of school. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done, you know. I know that many people consider Portland a model. Um, I also challenge that because I feel like there are ways that uh, my background in India and my upbringing and my culture um, and other cultures have are very vital in informing what we have going here. Fantastic. That's a lovely story and very serendipitous. How about you, Mark? Well, let's see. I like to, I like to, kind of give credit to people who have been involved in activism long before us, because part of my role in helping to get City Repair going back in the mid '90s was to kind of gather ideas and and sort of th- even you might say threads of of culture and of. Um, of initiatives that were already underway and try to kind of, I would say, restate them in a way where, where things were kind of brought together into maybe a new iteration or a new version. So, you know, we've been doing what you might call placemaking now in Portland for a while to birth participatory culture and to reclaim space and transform it into gathering places for community, um, beginning most, I think, dramatically with Pioneer Square. Um, so I, you know, in a way, city repair began officially with the efforts in the mid '90s. But um, really, the parts and pieces that make it up were all created by other people. I mean, just like a poet invents a, a poem, they're still using. Um, structures and language that were invented by others and, and in many ways metaphors that have been been tried before. So I think, you know, the ongoing cause of, you know, creating more a more uh, place-based social justice-oriented culture um, has been going on for a very, very long time. In fact, it's probably the basis of of human culture, of human habitat. You know, we, we, we like to all talk about villages um, because we identify with them so, so strongly because of the way that working and living is integrated. And I think, 
So, you know, I think that what we've been doing and what what I helped contribute to um, in the mid-90s was to try to restore the, the value of a village um, in Portland and then and then try to create a model that would inspire other people. And then I think that's what what really heard about the the rest of what I'll say is just that I think if we were smart about anything back then in the mid 90s, it was that uh, we knew that we didn't know everything and that what we had to create had to be open ended and comp essentially complementary so that when Riddy arrived, we became more complete, just like everyone else who steps into city repair. We, we we start to learn more and know more about what we're trying to do as everyone arrives and adds their their piece. I really like that way of explaining it as a multi-level collaboration for those who came before and those who keep continuing to join and add to the whole. Now, you mentioned a concept called placemaking. Could you talk a little bit about this concept and what does it mean to each of you? And why is it so important to our communities these days? Brady, do you want to start on that? Okay. Uh, the way I look at it, Oliver, is, you know, um, so I'm kind of a nerd. I'm going to out myself in that, but uh, I'll try to bridge it. I look at um, colonization in terms of uh, time and space compression, one component of it. Um, and what that means is that it, um, like, time becomes a commodity like you know it's like oh I gotta work to earn money to live this life or I don't have time to go into the woods I don't have time like all this busy stuff right like trying to keep um, keep up and then space as well where you know at least in, in Portland we're seeing this more and more where um, free space or um, un, unutilized space or um, things that are for, of just public benefit are getting less and less because because there's so much um pr it's prime real estate so land is getting privatized and commoditized in a really um intense way and what that creates for a human being and a human experience is i think this kind of fractured frenetic um and disorienting like you know um experience and so for me placemaking is um is at the at the spiritual level it's it's answering the question like what is my place in this universe in this life in relation to other life um so there's that component and then it's also kind of working to reclaim um my place like physically the land and my time um um and how i inhabit my life um in the more material sense um from ways that it has been taken away or kind of constrained and forced into certain ways and like life practices that I don't find con conducive to my spirit um, and to our collective spirit. So that to me is the, the two levels I see placemaking operating at. Excellent. And Mark? Well, I'd start off by agreeing with Riddy that especially in the American context, or Western hemispheric context of colonialism, um, placemaking has to be understood in that context. So, you know, let's see, I, I want to be able to give a simple definition though. Um, I'll just try by saying placemaking is the restoration of participation at the local level. You could say that. And, and so to contrast that with colonialism, 
what we find typically in American neighborhoods is that very strangely, um, unlike the th thousands and thousands of years of, of otherwise human history, in American neighborhoods, we find that we don't have power where we live to make decisions together, or at least that's what it, how it seems. And we don't have gathering places commonly. Living within colonialism has resulted in the fact that American neighborhoods are characteristically um, merely developments created for profit by developers. So we live in their economic and mental landscape, um, the void of their spiritual landscape. Um, and this is expressed particularly by the absence of gathering places in American communities, in Western hemispheric communities, but especially in the United States, where we actually have the lowest number of community gathering places of all first world nations. And because of that isolation, we've, we've been able to establish um, not just not just those of us who do placemaking, but academics and sociologists, anthropologists, um, public health officials and, and researchers have been able to establish that so many of our dystopic kind of but normative um, kind of patterns of life in American communities are resulting from our isolation. So we have about 10 times higher crime rates across the board than countries that we have so much to do with that our ancestors came from or that we trade with economically or we interact with politically. We have 10 times higher crime rates across the board. We literally kill each other and rape each other and steal from each other more frequently. And there's reasons for this. It's not just something about the wild American character. It's that those, those countries that we might identify with as our own ancestral base largely were created the, those landscapes were created by the people that inhabit them as a way of simply meeting their needs but in the usa if you live in a neighborhood like say especially a place like suburban dallas you're living in a vast tract of housing created for profit without even one bench to sit on maybe not even any bus service and certainly not a single public square because it was all laid out for profit by a developer with an architect helping funded by a banker and none of them interested in creating a public square because for one thing it's harder to sell that kind of thing to the community and for another thing you know those sorts of interests don't want communities to have a way not just a social space but a social organism like if you could if you if you were trying to sell them a public square they would have to get together in order to buy it and the last thing that development culture wants is for us to get together. I mean, this is this isn't a new thing either. This is at the very this is written into the National Land Ordinance of 1785, which was when these kinds of patterns and practices were basically embedded in the history of our country. The idea that we would just simply grid off the continent all the way to the Pacific Ocean and decide that it would all be transformed in a negative way from being um, characterized by the patterns and, and, and lives of, of native people who had lived there for thousands of years and instead to actually plan in that document to eliminate them, to reduce them, um, and then to convert their commonly held land into a commodity that could be sold off in little parcels. So, I mean, the, the story goes on and on and on, but the fact is, you know, 
functionally speaking, it results in the lives that we live today being characterized by isolation and the highest rates of violence. And it's, it's deeper than that. The kinds of phobias that we experience as, as individuals, the personal challenges that we have that seem insolvable, um, are also very much rooted in this kind of approach to uh, creating an anti-cultural condition for living. So placemaking has to, has, to, has to take this into consideration. And it's not hard. If people are divided and isolated, and then you as a placemaker are working in a community knowing that it is their very nature to actually know each other and work together and solve their own problems, then you can know before you even get started that as soon as you get started, everybody's hearts are going to be opening. They're going to be having epiphanies. They're even going to be acting a little crazy because they won't be able to believe or understand how wonderful they are feeling. So as a placemaker, you're bringing people together into kind of a scale of, 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 uh, of an organism of community that used to characterize our lives for at least 100,000 years in a very basic way and that um, still forms the foundation of our nature. So I'll just stop there, but that's, that's, that's a bit of it. That's, that's a bit of how we talk about it. No, it's absolutely fascinating, and <clears throat> I agree, absolutely essential as well to creating healthy and vibrant communities. Now, for both of you, but especially Riddy, having come from a culture and a place in the world where community space is still highly valued and a very active part of life there, where do you draw some of your inspirations? And I guess for both of you, what informs the designs and the efforts that you make in order to recreate these uh, essential and communal places in a city like Portland, Oregon? Well, Oliver, like one thing I want to say is like, you know, India is is a subcontinent and it's we've had lots of visitors, to put it one way. And then we were also colonized by the British, the Dutch, the French, the Portuguese. A lot of folks have come over. And um, so, you know, English is my first language. I grew up with a lot of privilege in terms of class. So um, I grew up Roman Catholic. So I'm going to throw that all in there because... Just to just to kind of um, just to kind of paint a a really complex picture of what's happening in India, where yes, there's like definitely I think um, um, a lot of like public space, and we have banyan trees that that are that I remember growing up and seeing people congregating around in more rural parts of India, um, and at the same time we also have a lot of Western ways and. Like, you know, I don't know, it's just complicated to say where East and West um, divide and meet. <laughs> Certainly um, in the modern times as well, yeah. Yeah, very complicated. And then, you know, the history in it is we, we, um, we, had, uh, we opened our market. We had a protectionist economy, then we opened it up in the 90s. And so then globalization came in a big way. And uh, so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of factors, but... I would say to get back to your question that um, that one way that I I try to design spaces is you know at, in the human realm I try to look at what the different needs and voices and perspectives are so that you know like truly looking at plural like does this work for me does this work for other people's needs like what what are we trying to do and accomplish and how can people feel safe and um, be set up to thrive 
in some ways, like what's that happy medium? Um, and then also looking at that for the non-human world, like what does that mean for birds and animals passing through um, or just ecology and the environment in general? Um, and then um, the other part, which might sound a little strange or um, woo-woo, as I sometimes hear people refer to it, but I think that if we listen, um, the la like sometimes I can get a sense of what the land wants to be, you know, it, and it might be energetic. Like it's just the way it's just for lack of a better word, it's it makes sense. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, this wants to be this is where the shed should go. It just makes sense. So I don't know. I feel like there's there's ways that you can um, you can go to school for some of these things, like for anthropology, for um, for urban planning and things like that. And they do teach us um, really useful skills. And at the same time, I strongly believe that it's just hardwired into our DNA. We've like lived from and off and with this this earth for a really long time. So it's just it's just kind of in us. And um, I do think we can get confused and um, or not be able to or, or, or we don't feel confident. Like we feel like, oh, we don't really know these things. I have to go to school to learn it. But I, I really believe that it's it's there. And it's just if we get out of our own way and that it's it's there for us to kind of use as our guiding voice and, and our design principles. Fantastic. I really like the way you spelled that out because it, it gives a lot of sort of empowerment and inspiration to people who maybe don't have a formal education in this, that perhaps their intuition and their own feelings could guide them well enough to create these, these spaces for themselves and for their community. How about you, Mark? Where do you draw your inspiration? Well, let's see. I think um, I, I would start by just agreeing with what you just said. Um, a lot of the choices that I make are, are, well, choices that I make are ultimately all confirmed by how I feel. There's so many choices that you can make with respect to design. Um, even like one of my favorite roles to play these days is to support the design initiative of others. Because frankly, when I'm designing, I can already visualize what it is I'm trying to create, which means the rest of the time I'm kind of producing it, which is kind of fun, but it's nothing compared to um, supporting and, and assisting other people in their process of um, kind of arriving at their creative capacity, their ability to express themselves. So I get to witness that um, unfolding or flowering, you might say, uh, and it's got scales of satisfaction. You get to watch people having this experience as individuals. You get to watch mothers working with their children, facilitating their involvement. And then you get to see all of these people working as a group, discovering their, their deeper um, identity with each other, their broader, larger identity. And it's, it's, um, it, it, it brings me sometimes to my knees with um, joy and uh, just an overwhelming emotion. And it's, um, 
it's it's uh, it's hard to even describe quite how I feel about it because my what what I'm tapping into in myself is not just my personal um, experience, but in order to help start City Repair, I had to go around and travel for many years, basically going around to different um, indigenous conditions, different places. Basically, I was asking what's what is wrong with me and what is wrong with my society. And uh, whether I was visiting Mayan people or, or Egyptians during Ramadan, um, everybody was so startled and moved and, and, and sort of like overjoyed even to be asked by a white man for their perspective on Western culture, United States in particular. So, I mean, your question about where does my inspiration come from, it, it very largely comes from um, not just the fact that I got all these multiple perspectives and literally sets of advice over and over again about how to understand colonialism and the intentional disruption of culture, which characterizes the the history of our country and about which we are so much in denial. It's um, but it's only part of that. I mean, what really propels me is the brotherhood and sisterhood that was offered to me as I went around um, seeking to be accountable for my kind, for my people. And um, people were so receptive and happy to share their perspective. And for that, um, I got a lot of growthful, you know, um, fertilizer for my soul. So when I'm w watching us, when I'm, you know, helping to, I guess, apply that advice, you know, like I'm say I'm in a neighborhood and I, and, I'm, and I walk into the circumstance already knowing that everyone's isolated and they don't know it. It's so normative, they don't even know it. And then yet again, I get to be part of helping people sit down and just begin to speak to each other. And I'm sitting there knowing that they can, that it's within their capacity within a few minutes to reactivate all these faculties that they have used for thousands of years in their ancestry to actually speak and and listen to each other and then fuse together their metaphors and their references and their memories into an expression of their kind of cumulative or their or their collaborative self and it works every time even even and, and you can witness so many different ways that it happens like if there's a disruptive person there intending to stop them you know that they are just being a villager trying to descend, defend their sense of place. And if you continue to feed that, the goodness of that, the NIMBY can become um, a powerful supporter and ally rather than just trying to fight, fight against them and stop them. Um, if you understand them more deeply, then you can help them to awaken to um, what they're really trying to do, which is that they really care about the village. They don't just want to defend all the only thing that the only ways that they know, the only patterns that they know, but they that they care about it deeply enough to actually start becoming creative. So when I see this playing out and then I remember the moments of um, the empathy and compassion that were extended to me, uh, it it makes me think of those people um, that I was visiting and just remember their the love and their kindness and that's an inspiration for me that has really opened up, I guess, metaphorically speaking, I, I feel like I was an artist before. I thought I was a real badass. I could draw like a maniac, but I was nothing compared to who I am now. 
that I have started to um, find satisfaction, so much more satisfaction in helping support the emergence of other people. It's opened up my creative capacity in ways that um, were unimaginable to me before. Uh, and I could do so much more individually, but now um, I'm capable of things I never could have imagined, you know, before it became like this. So I guess one thing that is also very propelling in this, just kind of like perpetual motion, is the personal transformation effects of doing this kind of work are restorative. They, they grow your, your capacity as a leader. They help you to be sincerely humble. They calm your heart. Issues that you might have been carrying for years and years disperse. And they disperse because you're finally more in alignment um, with your own nature. You know, Of course, you're going to be phobic if you're running around thinking you're alone in the world. And of course, you're going to start to become a healthier person as you're interacting with increasingly healthy people all around you. So it's a very restorative process that is self-renewing, I would say. And it's also very possible for you to exhaust yourself and burn yourself out at the same time. Um, so it's complicated. But uh, the inspiration can come from anyone, anywhere, anytime, I would say. Certainly, that's a, that's a very valuable perspective. And that also echoes a lot of my own experiences as I've been traveling uh, internationally and actually where I'm living right now here in rural Guatemala in a small indigenous town in the highlands. Um, my God, where are you? I am in Sununan, Lake Atitlan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's, it's one, of, a, that's, one, of the, that's one of the places where I was for a while. Yeah, a lot of people have passed through here. It's been a, a congregation point for a lot of good ideas and, uh, well, actually <laughs> a lot of war in the past too. So there's a, sure. there's a lot of energy and a lot of history to this place. Um, but yeah, I'm very fortunate to be in a in a small town that has been largely untouched through a lot of these events over history. In fact, uh, the main language spoken in the town is Cachiquel, and Spanish is a second language to pretty much everyone here. It makes for some very interesting communication dynamics. Gosh, wonderful <laughs> that you're there. It, it's making my head swirl. <laughs> we'll have to it. talk more after this interview and catch up on your experiences here. But hey, so... Sure. Up until now, we've talked a lot about the theories and the concepts behind placemaking and, and your work. Could you talk a little bit about some of the projects that you've helped to facilitate over the years and some which have had unique impacts on their communities through city repair, uh, starting with Reedy? I guess I can begin with the places that I inhabit because that's personal. But let maybe I'll start off broad and say... Um, yeah, by all means. Yeah. So there, there are times, you know, when I would say people have had sad experiences um, from doing projects or like, you know, burning out or whatever. I don't want to paint this picture that's like it's all good. Right. It's complex and we're working our ways through it. So. Um, so, yeah, I just want to present that. And then um, I've often so often heard of these incredible stories of just people unfolding and realizing that they have the power to influence, um, you know, their, their neighborhood, their neighbors, themselves, like, and it's kind of part of why our, our work is really hard to measure and evaluate is because it's kind of like how Mark described the birthing of city repair, you know, it's timeless. 
Um, and <laughs> you can try to like highlight certain threads, but you're never going to have all of it. Um, and so, so sometimes I've seen how communities come forward, they, they do a street painting and then they realize they all share a passion for, um, community resilience and emergency preparedness. This is a story from Eugene, um, that I heard. Um, sometimes it's like, you know, people come together and then they realize, oh, there's this elderly, um, neighbor that we have who, um, who doesn't want to ask for help, but could really use some help from, um, from us younger people taking out Blackberry. Um, and it's, and again, it's like, it's not just that the, the act of painting the street or, um, a village building convergence project itself. Um, is solely responsible, but it does catalyze um, a cascading series of like this enmeshing of our relationships, right? And so, you know, we it might even be as simple as in my old homestead, you know, we'd be out in the garden doing a work party, um, train like orienting volunteers, and then we're just out and about in in um, on edges that that we can interact with our neighbors, and then they call out to us and we invite them in, and then they ask us what we're doing and then we're like well we're doing this thing and then they're like wow that sounds cool and then so it begins you know and it just like reinforces this impulse to be a healing force um with the land collaborating with the land and with each other um and so you know we we painted the street outside my house where i currently live on sunday just this last sunday and i was reminded how um i know my neighbors but i've been i'm i've can easily slip into this I'm busy I have all this stuff uh to do and go to work and you know the same things that we that I feel like I'm I'm trying to um fight against sometimes as well and I was like oh you know what I'm gonna text my neighbor that I that I just saw who brought her kid out to paint the street and ask her whether she likes goat milk I lived next to her for a whole year and I don't know this because I just wanted to gift her something you know and it just it's I feel like this work reminds us um, of who we are and what's important um, to us. And then it, it creates a mechanism or a container for us to find that deeper connection and then activate around it. Even if, it might be as simple as like mutual support emotionally, but it could also be like, you know, some really significant um, activist oriented things like like neighborhood scale or block scale um solar um energy or renewable energy and earthquake preparedness who knows right like it i i just feel like it gives it gives us um that opportunity or makes that potential palpable <laughs> so you feel like oh you know what this is possible so yeah absolutely yeah it, it's really once you get started with a project it takes on a life of its own and it seems like it facilitates connections that uh, grow larger than the initial project or investment and can manifest as different things as they grow, mature, or make connections with, in other ways as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. How about you, Mark? What are some of the projects that you've done recently or in the past and how they've impacted the communities in which you've done them? Well, I'm thinking right now of the, the most recent like literally the last meeting and then the first one. 
And I'm also thinking about your question from earlier about sources of inspiration. Uh, so I want to talk about um, this. We, we've basically been helping to be part of the, uh, the, the movement to create tiny home-based villages by and for homeless people since 1999. So we're really, we are both the old kind of the oldest design activist entity in the country in a sense or we're the most senior involved in this from the start we've always been involved and we've been involved in in pushing and pushing and pushing um the idea that well the awareness that um people can be healed they can come together they can find new purpose they can have a restorative effect that so-called broken people, people that are cast away by our society can find um, a place and new value in um, the village. And there's so much more to it though. I mean, for me personally, it's it's maybe the leverage point um, for reintroducing human scale, car-free, utterly participatory, you know, environment of self-regulation that integrates living and working again, which to me is the antidote to people keep asking, like, is this the answer? Is this the answer to everything? In fact, really, I think the Tribune um, this week, its front page article is focused on our villages and it's asking, is this the answer? Um, yeah, it's that this is the ultimate form of placemaking where it's not just a bench, it's the whole damn landscape. And it's absolutely everything that can be considered from the social organism and how it self-regulates through grassroots democracy and how it propels itself through all forms of alternative uh, currency, you know, not even necessarily needing money anymore to, you know, the most, um, perma you know, the most permacultural expression of everything being in relative location and all these functions, dysfunctions actually being stacked to the point where you're actually producing functions out of dysfunction. Um, yeah, and, and so it's really ground us in the awareness that it's the village that's been missing the whole time. It's why we even have homelessness at all. It's why we have crazy rich people thinking that they need more than they can possibly ever spend. It's because of this dystopic condition that we're in. So that's our newest project, well, our newest, our newest that's a con that's actually a continuity that goes almost back to the beginning as a project type, but the most recent one is a is a home for a village for um, veterans, United States veterans in a small town outside of Portland, where this small uh, conservative town, actually the county, this very conservative county, is doing this work on behalf of um, of the veterans within its boundaries, and. There's supposed to be this antagonism between progressive Portland and rural Clackamas County, but a bridge has been established at the most radical edges um, for Portland now to inform how Clackamas County starts to actively take care of, of their veterans. So we're actually designing a village with all these powerful, outstanding, professional, corporate collaborators that are being transformed through their participation in this project. So that's an incredible thing. And, and, and why I'm able to make such wild claims is because, um, you know, we're creating a place where the veterans will actually, I mean, as opposed to in their harsh military conditioning programs, 
that in so many ways resulted in them being betrayed and broken. Um, this will be a place where they live in a more geomorphic way. It'll be a landscape that's not, it's not, it won't be like anything that they've known before, you know, where basically they're just slotted in next to other people's homes as if everyone is just a product and a worker. There's going to be a dignity to this landscape where the buildings are addressing the sun and capturing, you know, passive sunlight and turning it into heat and light inside of their spaces. And then they'll have common spaces, not just for them to enjoy, but where they'll have meaningful roles to actually run the village. Everything from making decisions together about every large and small detail um, to how they will take out the garbage and maintain the landscape. So it'll be their place um, as they transition back into a life um, that is, you know, more dignified for them off of the streets, back to their families or off of the streets and on with their destiny. So that's a current project. The very first project, though, um, was I'm thinking of it right now because of the fact that you're that you're there down next to the lake, Atitlan. Um, we really got started. Um, the, the final piece of advice that I was going around gathering came from the Lakandon Maya north of you in Chiapas. And uh, the launch pad for me from there was being in San Pedro for um, several months and learning and growing, adventuring in the landscape and visiting various cooperativas. I'd been in Quetzaltenango for a pretty good amount of time before I arrived there. Nice. But then That's went the city north. where I got started too. Oh, really? Yep. Were you doing some language studies there or what? Yep, just like everybody. Great. Well, that's that's the best town. It is the best. It. Great community there. So, um, yeah, I ended up with the Lacandon Maya, and I'd been intending to go there for a long time because they're famous for having never been conquered and uh, distorted by um, having, you know, being forcibly Catholicized or... Uh, you know, forced to live in in, in uh, colonial grid patterns. So, in nonetheless, they've they've still been impacted since they were recontacted about I don't know, uh, ninety five years ago or something, eighty five years ago maybe. So, I guess I'm um, thinking about what you asked earlier about sources of inspiration. This this project was informed by an education in urban design and um, a bit of some mystical amazingness um, related to the Lacandon. And then uh, I would say a bit of um, kind of Jedi stuff too, which is, which is a bit magical about trusting your feelings and following your heart. But basically, I mean, the mystical part is when I was there with the Lacandon asking what was wrong with me, they described the destruction of my own villages and, um, you know, the, the idea that my family had basically been conscripted forcibly to become part of this colonizing force and uh, to try to figure out what you can do to stop that um, was almost a fruitless exercise without finding your own roots and understanding what had happened to your own people. So they advised me to learn the story of uh, when my own ancestors first came into contact with these aggressive regimented structures that are so violently imposed. And that was very helpful once I got home. But they keep talking about they kept talking about the lines drawn on the landscape, the absence of gathering places, and the absence of uh, you know cultural dynamism within the landscapes where we live, and you know all this stuff. And uh, when I got home, 
it was overwhelming. I was deep in culture shock and, and actually seriously contemplating killing myself. But fortunately, and this is one of the mystical aspects, fortunately, they told me exactly what to do when I had come to a moment where I was, I was, I was, uh, I felt, I felt hopeless. And so they just said, okay, once you feel that, then remember this and think about this. And so right, right when I was in deepest despair and feeling absolutely empty, um, suddenly I remembered what the advice that I'd been given in that moment. And I was filled. I stood up and I looked outside the window of this garage that I was living in. I was unable to even support myself. I was so upset about coming back to a society of such confusion and violence. Um, but I looked outside the window and I suddenly visualized this thing that would become the first project that was this catalyst. And basically, you know, the most essential pieces of the human landscape that are missing in American communities are things like the public square and then the great meeting house, the non-dogmatic, you know, non, non, uh, non-theological gathering place, more open-ended, multicultural, I mean, multi, multi-use intergenerational space that is as much spiritual as it is just simply functional, a great gathering place. And so um, I just saw it in front of my eyes. And that was the thing that I just then set about creating that very night and worked for months and months until it was done. But the crazy thing is that it was literally described before it was ever mad. I mean, before I even visualized it in Portland, it was actually described in the rainforest in Chiapas. And I remember listening to them talk about this space. And I was like, how in the world will that be possible? How in the world will, will, will that be created? And actually debating it. And they said, basically, um, just learn who you are. Stand in the middle of a street intersection and look at the long straight flat lines. Know your own story. Um, and and then just begin to create and become as healthy as possible because everyone around you will is deeply interested in becoming healthy again and so create a space for them to come together um so this thing was designed to be like a giant womb that everyone could re-enter um together and then have an experience of in a sense rebirthing but without anyone without any program without any sort of coercion, nobody saying what needed to be done, no, no, no chanting, no mantras, just basically an open-ended potluck in, an, in, a, in a fabulous space that reintegrated people with nature. And, uh, and everything in city repair basically, you know, kind of then accelerated from there, I would say. Fantastic. Yeah, that's quite a beautiful vision. Um, moving on to some of your other projects, Riddy, could you tell me about some of the mobile installations that you've helped to build and where did the inspiration from those come from? <laughs> well, the most recent one that we've been working on is the tea crab. Um, and gosh, again, it's really hard to find, to pinpoint, but I'll do my best, Oliver. Um, I think what was, what we were what happened was that we were thinking about a bike version that wasn't fossil fuel, as fossil fuel based um, as, you know, regular vehicles. Um, and so then we, we, you know, as we were having conversations, um, one of my housemates is a gifted artist. 
Um, and, you know, I, here's a little side, side note. I, it gives me great pleasure to, co- to connect um, artists, to collaborate together. Like collaborative art is just be- so utterly beautiful to me. And also it gives me so much joy to connect good men. Um, so that because I feel like, you know, patriarchy um, and paternalism doesn't just affect women or, you know, the feminine aspect, but it really hurts the masculine as well. And so I feel like women um, tend to gather more easily than men do. So anyway, I was like, I need to make these people meet and hang out. And so that was part of my evil plan. Um, but anyway, back back to the actual um to the tea crab and then um I think that part of the inspiration also was uh we were doing some houseless support during the cold snap that we had here this past winter and we you know so we're looking at people and how they survive with like eight inches of snow on the ground um and like you know just we had to tromp through some um some difficult terrain even though it was in the city and so the inspiration for it being a crab and how it carries its own home on its back and just like kind of querying and questioning this concept of do we call do we need to call um a a box a house or like how do why do we identify people who don't kind of um you know, conform to our notion of a house. Like, why, why is there so much stigma? And there's just a lot of deep conversations around that that I feel like also fueled the tea crab in some ways. And then, of course, there's, you know, like Mark was saying, a bit of magic where you're like, okay, and then it also has to be this super inspiring um, and and kind of mystical creature that attracts people. It kind of ruptures the mundane um by giving people this out of ordinary experience um in in like any kind of underutilized space or a park or wherever it is that we choose to take it um and so the the idea being with this with this version that we want to get it into um most spaces that like or different spaces perhaps i don't know we're still trying to figure out what the programming will look like but um, the intention definitely is to delight um, the the inner child in us adults, as well as like actual children who who will act on that um, delight more easily, perhaps. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'm gonna leave them. <laughs> That's wonderful. Now, Mark, uh, I remember from the few times that I lived in Portland, Oregon, that the village building convergence is quite the annual event. Could you tell my listeners about what the VBC is and how it got started and how it's morphed into the community, natural building, and permaculture extravaganza that it is today? Well, I would say um, we continue to learn about what it is that we're doing. I've, I've got an answer for you, but it uh, it, it keeps getting sort of better. Um, yeah, let's see. So... I would say, simply put, that it is a, it is the return of the barn raising, and and through it we have through this 17 years now we've been doing this, we have learned that you know it's not just the public square that's missing, it's not just the social organism that 
regulates and maintains and programs and inhabits that public square because the square or the you know the village heart it it doesn't exist itself it exists because of and along with and it, you know sustained by the social organism that it is it's for um but that's it's an expression of so we've always we've always known that from the beginning of our work but as we've been figuring out ways to restore that to you know not just portland but all these other cities that are now doing the village building convergence along with us um we've we've been learning more about what we couldn't see before like you know you don't just have a public square that square is there to accommodate all sorts of things that are supposed to be cyclical annual events like imagine you're a village where you are meeting your own needs bioregionally you're undoubtedly going to be getting together for all kinds of ways of sharing the abundance and inspiring each other and, and meeting challenges or crises um but also having sacred experiences together in that space so one of the greatest ways that we organized you know over millennia that human beings have organized the ongoing development of their culture um has been to come together um in celebration and to do work projects and the barn raising is one of the one of the ones that we still remember um that used to bring communities together at a certain consistent time of year in which everyone in the community had a role and played a part it was a a time of cultural fusion not just to build together over a uh, over a span of time but then to celebrate and share food and at the end of it of course the great project becomes evident it's not about the barn at all the barn is just a means to bring people together so they see each other again and they fall more deeply in love you know so that in the warm months that follow the barn raising more loving happens and literally children are created and families are more deeply interwoven so it's a rediscovery i mean barn raisings become kind of a metaphor for people without realizing at the same time that it is actually desperately missing in nearly every com- american community there isn't a, a regular way that people come together you know thinking about the fact that americans move every 4 to 7 years because there's that the roots don't go down they uproot themselves and they look for a better place or they're upwardly mobile only in economic terms but i can tell you already that the restoration of the barn raising if it happens in in almost any community people suddenly realize oh my god i'm surrounded by the muscle and the talent that powers the whole society i'm surrounded by all the friends that i could ever need that i could ever want and they stop moving this is a this is an amazing revelation for us to 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 hold together like oh my god we keep searching for that which is already all around us but we're so isolated and we're so used to thinking that we don't have power that we don't reach out to the people around us to even help each other feel more safe i mean how how reduced have we become to the extent that we don't take an interest in each other's children and say to ourselves by god today the streets will become safer if only for the children of everyone around me you know that used to be what got us up in the morning more than anything else more than just meeting our own basic needs so um gosh i've even forgotten the 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 question that you asked me <laughs> we were just talking about the vbc yeah so the vbc is that but it's so much more than that i mean you know the barn raising is just abstract until you 
until you're in it. And then you see that it's a way of um, actually bringing together like all of the inspiration and the inherent diversity of people so that you see that everyone actually is complementary and brings something very special. Uh, you know, just to cut to the, the current time, the BBC, the BBC is a way of standing in utter contrast to the xenophobia that's been rising um, that only can exist without the barn raising existing. Because, you know, it's, it's easy to polarize and divide people if they don't have a basis to bring them together, if they don't realize that they literally stand on common ground. It's been so easy to manipulate and polarize people simply based on insolvable political issues like abortion, for instance. If people don't have a way of understanding that there's so much more that they share across that political divide. In fact, I can assure you that I, th I think I have never, in all of the hundreds of projects that we've done in Portland, I have never even heard communities digress into these polarizing um, issues that are just played out endlessly in the media. They find so much more, I mean, and I can speak right now, especially about my own community that's been doing this for, for 21 years now, I don't even remember a community gathering where people had an argument about how, how they had differences politically. It's so much more about just excavating the wealth of all of this commonality, sharing the stories of where they live or where they've lived, how they feel about their place now, the new friends that they have, the ideas that they want to try out the help that they need or the help that they would offer. I mean, literally it's endless, all the stuff that gets unleashed by doing this stuff that reveals, you know, physical and metaphorical common ground. So yeah, the village building convergence is a restorative thing and it was designed um, very much coached by the Lock and Don Maya before it even happened um, as a way of trying to counteract colonialism and restore things, ways of being that have been submerged for such a long time. And that's why it's a phenomena that is spreading and taking on endless new forms with, you know, the same kind of core set of principles. Mm -hmm. Those are some great points. Uh, Riddy, do you have anything that you would like to add to that? Or how would you describe the VBC to anyone who hasn't heard of it before? I would say that it's the largest scale empowerment and just like this regenerative future healthier future however you want to call it whatever you want to call it like it's the largest scale I've witnessed of it happening and very embedded like it's not a it's not a convergence where you bring people from all different places and then you kind of share stories like this is people and empowered and enacting change um, in their own communities. And so for me, um, seeing, seeing that there's like, you know, we have between 30 to 40 sites every year, um, implementing their projects in, in Portland alone. So to see it at that scale, it's, um, it's remarkably affirming. You know, I, I feel like many of us sometimes when we, when we first start listening to our hearts and doing this work, um, and at least this was my experience that, you, you feel alone in it. You feel like you don't fit. And, you, you you know, it's almost like there's something wrong with me. I can't, like, turn it off. I can't turn off my empathy. I can't, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z. But I feel like um, in some ways City Repair is where all these 
all of us misfits kind of come together. We found each other. <laughs> and then, um, and we don't, and we all have our different quirks um, and like all, all of these placemakers too, you know, they're not accepting um, things just as they are. They, they are an impulse of like making things more wonderful. And so I feel like we found each other and we're finding ways to kind of um, um, highlight and, and, and um, bolster each other's creative and unique spirit. Um, which is just so beautiful. Collaborative leadership to me is just, it's so joyful because I feel like it just is uh, such a regenerative social and cultural pattern that we need more of. So that's how I would describe it. That's lovely. That's really well said. Uh, Now I want to shift gears here just a little bit and really make use of some of your experience and expertise here. Knowing my own go-getter audience of this podcast, what advice would you give to my listeners on some of the most effective actions that they could take to facilitate connection and cooperation in their own communities? If you have any specific examples, even better. Go ahead, uh, Reedy. I would say, first off, maybe be humble. Um, like, I feel like part of what drew me to this work and keeps me here is just the open-endedness um, of it, where it's not ever complete because more people arrive, and so there's spaciousness for people to contribute in meaningful and deep ways. Um, so to not have that attachment to um, things being a certain way, but a commitment to the process um, of helping each other unfold. And I, I feel like I would say for me, that has been humility <laughs> um, over and over again. And and also um, just like really, really trying to uphold pluralism. I've noticed that when I get triggered um, or when I'm overwhelmed, I find it hard to hear another perspective that's different from my own. Um, but ideally we would be like, inclusive and taking into consideration diversity of opinions and perspectives um so pluralism um and then taking away our fear of failure so really embracing and celebrating failure because we are definitely going to fail i guarantee i guarantee you you will fail um and that's part of it it's a learning journey so really looking at it as a learning journey um and and then Perhaps the last thing I'll say is being gentle and trusting and forgiving of oneself. Um, I I bring a lot of my own kind of grief into this. Um, at you know whether it's like my colonial and um, colonial effects on my ancestry, my own ancestry, and like you know I feel like humanity we're, we're very complex. We're we're both capable of amazing things and also really horrific things, and so. Um, you know, while, while I feel like the BBC and City Repel, like we really highlight and, and catalyze the, the positive, um, tendencies that humanity has, um, I feel like holding space for our grief so that we can transmute it into this beauty is equally important. So when we do find like in ourselves things that are hard or in others, like to, to be compassionate. And especially with ourselves as activists, I really, I really want to um, emphasize that because I, I see an activist culture where often really hard on ourselves 
And then that ripples out into burnout culture and other toxic patterns. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's really valuable advice. <laughs> I think I'm actually going to have to implement some of that myself. Mark, same question to you. Okay. Well, let's see. I will just pass on some Mayan advice, which is this. The revolution you seek needs to be one where you can start right now with whatever you have and whoever is with you. Um, so that's it. Um, but what does that mean? It, uh, it, it, it leads to a lot of things. Um, you challenge colonialism, which tells you that you have no power, that you can only vote or write a check to a cause or write a letter to your congressman and uh, hope that somebody else will care enough to do something and someone else will have enough of a budget to pay someone else to act on your behalf. All of that is bullshit. It is bullshit. Um, although I, I would say do what you can. Like voting is not bullshit in the sense that people have fought against this paradigm in order to ensure that people have rights and access um, in that in that realm. People died to vote. So that's not bullshit. But it's bullshit to say that that's your only that's your only spectrum for action. Um, it's bullshit that pe other people define the issues for you that you vote on without necessarily asking you what you really want to vote on. Um, that's bullshit. But giving voice in every single way that you can is important. Um, so, you know, writing a check to support causes and organizations, that's important. Um, you know, being being an advocate in any way that you can, that you're given in this construct, that, that's all important. But it's even more important, like thinking about that advice to act where you are right now with what, whoever you have and whatever you have is basically trying to, to wake us up to the idea that we actually have our power. We stand in it right now, that it's absurd to say that anyone else can possibly have your power is a trick. It's a trick. It's a it's a strange kind of structure that we we carry around with ourselves like a box or a, a box on our head that prevents us from seeing the beauty, the beauty of the world and feeling our true strength to speak. Freaking we have thumbs and ears, you know? We have a voice, like we can sing. There's any, there's, there's, there's actually limitless ways that we can affect the world with the spectrum of, of our senses and our embodiment to actually go forth and immediately change the world. So what, what does that mean in practical terms? I mean, for myself, I walked into an intersection I looked around. I'd been coached to realize that standing in an, in an intersection in the colonial grid, you're standing where the village was supposed to begin because intersections are where the pathways of our lives come together. That's where we should be creating culture. We should be interacting with each other in that space. It should not be nullified and just reduced to a traffic corridor. In terms of the lineage of our, of our thousands and thousands of years together, that was always a place where our lives converged. And in fact, in urban design and planning, the first move to design a village is to find that point where your lives come together in an intersection and enhance that through placemaking so that it actually serves its primordial function to bring people together. But first, to do that, you have to reclaim your power. You have to like take the box off of your head the leash off of your neck, the collar, you know, and then unleash yourself, free yourself and say to yourself, I indeed 
have my power and I my life purpose now will flower as I go forth seeking the liberation of everyone else around me you know and like Riddy said it's you're gonna have plenty of chances to make mistakes and instead of fearing those like instead of numbing yourself or silencing your voice for fear of failure run toward those points of learning like no that's not even a digression it's not even a bump in the road every time you 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 courageously go into the unknown and you encounter situations um, that are beyond your experience you just jump into that because it's your chance to grow to a whole new level of power so these so-called mistakes are actually learning opportunities and once you start to see that you can coach that in other people like yes embrace that opportunity and turn it into a you know a, a and turn it into the flip side of everything that you've experienced like the everything you've experienced that's dystopic on the flip side of it is the grand glorious gleaming like missed opportunity that could always have happened instead and now it's your time it's a whole new chapter in your life to actually write write that um, dystopic wrong so reclaim your own power and start wherever you are you know literally even if you're like oh my god but yeah this is a mundane parking lot no the opportunity is right there in the mundane to transform it into something you might you might think of as being more miraculous there's another thing though to really help with that make it make it part of your own healing process to dream on other people's behalf to like seek their fulfillment their emergence their liberation through your own creative initiative like it's important to at some point realize our self-obsession and self-absorption to the extent that we accumulate so much or that we only think about our own about our own hide day in and day out is actually a symptom of living within the compartmentalization of colonialism it's actually made you self-obsessed you know that kind of thing so you break out of that and you become a larger stronger self by actually caring about other people dwelling on them like what are they doing today what are their dreams and aspirations how can you connect to that and of course what you get in return is a form of friendship that is more sincere and real and grounded than you ever knew before even with people that you thought you could never care about and all of this grows your soul it creates more surface area for your feeling and for your for your learning so you know that's all very much about personal transformation but you know i think it was like what uh michael stone was saying um in one of his presentations just shortly before he died um that the more you become enlightened i guess um the more you become also uh disturbed by the state of what everyone else is going through and it compels you to become a more creative agent in um everyone's life so it just doesn't stop um and then that just keeps growing you so you know i, I guess i would also advise people like in a way keep doing your spiritual practice but also um become more interested in a larger scale of self I don't think you're going to find what you're looking for exclusively through yoga and meditation. Um, you're going to find more of what you're looking for probably through more surface area, more contact with the real lives and needs of the people around you. Um, and then it'll embed these lessons in your daily, your daily way of living. That's what I would say. I'm very glad you said that. I, I agree with that profoundly. Now, I know from my own experience that the right considerations in planning 
make a world of difference in how a project turns out. And this is any type of project. Uh, could you both give some advice on some essential factors or elements in community revitalization projects that people often overlook or forget? Well, certainly it would be, um, you know, those of us that are trained in the in the culture of um, design and development in architecture and planning or in construction and finance um, have been trained to be more about the actual project and not so much about the community and no, not so much about the people who will actually inhabit the project. So I think the most overlooked aspect is to make a stronger link um, between the, the potential occupants of the place. And think of like, you know, low-income housing, for instance. If you're only thinking of it as housing and not as a village, then all you're going to do is house people. I think even for selfish reasons, a developer should care like, gosh, don't you want to leave a legacy in the world? Aren't you tired of waking up every day, you know, having sending your kids out into the streets of a world that only gets worse every day? Like what kind of legacy are, gonna, are you going to leave after all this damn work that you've done with your life? Couldn't you build more? You could use the same material, same amount of material and the same cost and create more. Doesn't that matter? So I think overlooking the community, <laughs> overlooking humanity uh, is probably the biggest omission of um, of projects. So yeah, try to root what you do in real community. And then in terms of sustainability, there's so many different ways to think about sustainability beyond financial models um, that also connect back to community. You know how how because because you know you can you can install like a uh, you know, a more energy efficient heating and cooling system in your project. Um, but if the community is just reduced, reduced to pushing buttons and not actually interacting with their environment, then you haven't really created a sustainable culture. You've only, um, you know, you've only created a building that's more energy efficient, but it won't even necessarily be inhabited that way if people can't relate to it. So again, it comes, comes back to the community. Fantastic. All right. Um, same question to you, Riddy. Um, I'm going to draw on an approach that I learned from Judy Bluehorse, who uh, is a mentor of mine. He's a local uh, native herbalist and uh, sorceress, is the way I want to describe her. Um, but Judy, when she when she's working with land, installing native gardens, she has this way of, A, um, really taking some time to observe who is there and, um, and seeing perceiving the land not so much from her own um, frame of reference. Like, you know, oh, I want this to be X, Y, rather like this year. And what is often uh, our own goals and expectations um, color the way that we look and perceive everything, right? And so there might be ways that community is gathering that we haven't, we don't relate to, so we don't recognize. So A, I would say, you know, just taking some time when there's a revitalization project, like who is there, who's revit, like, you know, asking questions of uh, um, that, that kind of, I would say, question some presumptions that we may be um, starting off with. Um, and then another thing that you does, so then, okay, so for example, then there's, there might be lawn and dandelions and things like that. And in permaculture, we say like, okay, we first observe and then we recognize that even though the dandelions and other like 
quote unquote weeds are present that actually they are doing beneficial things to the to the soil. So identifying ways that things that we may not like or want might actually be serving really core functions there and holding it together. And um, and then when you want to change it, because you're like, okay, well, it's it's mostly dandelions, um, and I do want to put a native garden here. Um, and you know, it's been gone through like it's the goal not just of you perhaps, but like um, of a number of people who've expressed that desire. Then going about it in a way that doesn't um, disregard or dishonor um, the the some of the the key aspects of that place. So. Maybe there's ways to sheet mulch or turn the soil and plant that doesn't completely like um, uh, destroy the uh, the weeds that were present because many of them are medicinal. Like, most times, I prefer to move into a project um, with a fair amount of time, uh, but also not to kind of understate that excitement of like, whoa, and then we just like blitzed this garden and now it's got beautiful huckleberries and other gorgeous native plants. Like there is that potential for transformation, but I feel like it has to be grounded in deep listening to the inhabitants, the existing inhabitants and the future users. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, just before we wrap up here, I know that there are lots of opportunities for volunteers to get involved, and there are a ton of events, in, especially the months ahead. Riddy, could you give me a rundown of the ways that people can get involved with City Repair? Well, multiple ways. One, I would say, is if you need a little bit of help in, um, in starting something similar wherever you're at, um, get in touch with us. Info at cityrepair.org. We check that. Um, fairly like, often, and so we will respond to that as best as we can. Um, and then if you are wanting to come visit us and um, embed yourself into the social culture we're part of here, um, email us either info at cityrepair or volunteer at cityrepair.org. We do internships. We can do that for credit, like whatever whatever works. We're very collaborative in the way that we um, co-facilitate our collective emergence, right? So that that applies to volunteer opportunities as well. We might give you some guidelines like, oh, we could use help with budget or whatever, but uh, we're definitely looking to learn from you and to help you um, thrive in whatever ways you want. Um, and then right now, seasonally, we're, we are in budget season. That's why I mentioned it. <laughs> but um we're going, we still have some events because it's the summer and um, we're celebrating and spending time um, in the woods and things like that. And then in the fall, we will launch our new season um, for Village Building Convergence 2018. We'll be calling in um, uh, proposals for community projects um, to participate that way. Uh, we'll also be calling on folks to help us get the village up and running, which is, you know, it's a lot, a lot of interesting things like children's activities, healing, sponsorships, like all the back end you can imagine of organizing an event of this scale. Um, and we also have a robust um, organizing wing or in like connection to, um, to the houseless um, 
houseless organizing and advocacy. So that's something we we do year round, and we're very deeply immersed in, like like Mark mentioned earlier. Um, so there's tons of stuff that we are implicated in currently, um, and we're also always open to exploring new potential horizons with what you bring in. So just get in touch. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, Mark, do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Let's see. I think, well, really is has been for the last, um, I think, three years now, really, the main placemaking coordinator and uh, co-executive director of City Repairs. So I think she has a better sense of of the things that are currently going on than I do, um, especially because my wife and I have just had a little baby girl. So um, I'm not quite as in touch with all that we have going on. But I would I would say that, you know, the culture of activism that we represent uh, is very open ended. And I think that um, it's still true that I mean, just as really said, we're very interested in being affected by the people that come into what we're doing. So for for people who want to come in and learn, they can easily come do that. There's people who um, would love to work with them. But the thing is that this is all propelled by friendship. So, you know, if, if you're, if you're a person that is looking to, um, you know, to become more skilled and experienced and perhaps, you know, more equipped, uh, in some future job capacity, that's all fine. That's definitely part of what we're interested in too. But part of the terms of placemaking, um, and also of decolonization is that we elevate once again, um, the highest value um, of indigenous people of this land, which is, and, and this is a way of reclaiming, and not just on behalf of the native people of this land, but your own native self, that friendship becomes the highest value and the most sacred word. So, you know, rather than, like rather than for us to say, oh, we're a nonprofit 501c3, we have a board of directors, and this is how we operate, we use consensus model, or, you know, whatever it is that we, that we've um we've also got going on that is not none of that is more important than the fact that we are propelled and guided by um, the desire to to make friends and be genuine with each other so it's a very healthy culture and when people arrive and 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 want to get involved they can surely step right in especially to whatever's going on in the moment but if they have an idea, a world-changing idea, whether it's to address climate change or to involve, you know, youth in a more effective way, um, we're all about it. We want to know what people are carrying, and new new projects can be birthed here. Um, and this is an excellent foundation for people to try out things. So, you know, when we talk about city repair, we know full well that we haven't repaired the city and we still don't quite know how to do it. It's going to take the entire city to do it. And once we're there, we'll have repaired it. So it's a, it's a grand goal and ambition and we need everyone's help. Even our, you know, so-called adversaries eventually will realize that we're all on the same side. And that's what we mean by the repaired city. Excellent. Well, I want to thank both of you for a very insightful, very thoughtful interview and, uh, you've been very generous with your time. I've gotten a ton of value from it, and I hope maybe we can follow up and learn a little bit about how your projects continue to evolve and include more and more voices in the future. We've got a great team, Oliver. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it. Yeah.
Well, thank you for having us. Um, yeah. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Oliver. Have a great day. Thank you too, Mark. Take care, you guys. You too. Bye. So before we wrap up this show for the week, I've got some exciting news about the upcoming months. And I'm joined here now with my good friend and founder of Atitlan Organics, Shad Goodsey. Hey, buddy, what's new? Oh, man, so much is happening. First off, though, I just want to say thanks for having me, man. I really love your podcast, and I actually had a great time doing that interview back in one of the earlier episodes. Anyway, probably what's most exciting is our new collaboration between Atitlan Organics and Abundant Edge. As you know, we've been offering permaculture design courses for over six years now, and they really have become a staple here in Lake Atitlan. In particular, though, the Intro to Permaculture course is just an amazing way for travelers, gardeners, architects, basically anyone to fully immerse themselves in this new paradigm of permaculture design. Like, honestly, you can't take this course and still see the world the same way afterward. Man. Yeah, it's that's life-changing. Sure. But like I said, what I'm most excited about is that now, thanks to our collaboration, we're going to be able to offer your natural building course immediately after every one of our intro to permaculture courses. Literally, this two-week offering is like possibly the most complete package that I know of available anywhere. Basically, with these two courses alone, I think that someone should have everything they need to start their own regenerative project or just their own regenerative lifestyle. That's, that's what I'm excited about, man. But uh, yeah, what about you? What's going on? Man, well, you know already that me and the Abundant Edge team are gearing up for a big season as well. I mean, starting in November, we'll be breaking ground on a regenerative farming demonstration site, which is, of course, right down the hill from your farm. We'll be building animal pens, a classroom, outdoor kitchens and lounge areas connected to houses, and it's all going to be made out of natural materials. I mean, the site is going to serve as a demonstration farm for perennial and regenerative farming methods for years and years to come. And we'll even be offering courses and internship opportunities to people who want to learn for themselves about how to build with natural materials and set up their own farms. Heck yeah. That sounds amazing, man. And honestly, this is just about the best place in the world to learn all these things too. I mean, this little town of Sununa in the gorgeous tropical mountains of Guatemala, like right here on the shores of Lake Atitlan, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world. And on top of that, you have this traditional indigenous Mayan culture that's still rich and alive. And probably my favorite part is that we have this world international community of alternative people that are open to new ideas and really putting things into practice. I mean, within walking distance of the Bamboo Guest House, you've got loads of things going on. we got the projects that we've already talked about, but you also have yoga retreat centers. You have Charlie Rendell's Natural Bamboo Building School. You have Love Probiotics. you got Fungi Academy. And honestly, loads more alternative, blow-your-mind type stuff. I honestly just feel like this is where it's all happening. Yeah, man, it really does. And I want to get as many people as possible in on these projects, but we've got to make sure that they've got the skills first. So what do you say? Let's offer a big discount to those who sign up for both courses. I mean, all food and lodging in the amazing Bamboo Guest House is already included in the tuition. So this will be like the best deal that we've ever offered. That's a great idea. Because I mean, people can still take just one course if that's what they're into or if they can't make the full two weeks. But this will actually make the two courses more accessible to even a wider audience of people. And that way more people can get the knowledge that they need to get started doing what they want to do. So, hey, to all of you listening out there, 
We really want passionate and driven people like you to come and be a part of the community and the ecosystem that we're building out here. So if you're ready to take the next step and really dive in, there's no better time to invest in yourself by joining us on this journey to a regenerative future. Shad, how can they get in touch with us and see the upcoming events and workshop schedule? For sure. Well, for start, they can either go to atilanorganics.com and click on the workshops tab, or they can check out abundantedge.com and click on the education tab. Either one of these will get you all the information you need for all of the courses that we're offering in the months ahead. We're really looking forward to working and collaborating with all of you inspired and enthusiastic people out there. But even if you can't make it out yourself, I'm sure you know someone in your network who would jump at the chance to get involved in this positive, regenerative, and truly life-changing projects. So this is Oliver Gaucher and Chad Goodsey inviting you to come and be a part of the regenerative future that we are building. Can't wait to see you here. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer, from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, where I share updates and pictures on our projects, regenerative living articles, and even free resources and giveaways. Right now, you can get a discount code for 50% off your digital subscription to the incredible Permaculture Magazine of North America, simply by finding the code under the show notes of this episode. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be a conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info at AbundantEdge.com. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you again on next week's session.